Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I'm still undergoing self-isolation, but we we don't have the time for the thing, for the song, for the thing. Did you know that as of now, the Confederate battle flag could still be flown on uh, facilities of the United States Army, Navy, and Marines? I don't know about the Air Force. I don't know if they can fly it. I don't know if it flies. Yeah, that's the country we're living in. Um, it, it became public knowledge, if it wasn't already this week, when the services began suggesting they were going to change their ways on that particular subject. It became known as part of the discussion um, between military officials and <laughs> President Trump regarding the renaming of at least 10 army bases currently named after Confederate generals. You know, the guys who uh, seceded from the Union, this this country we have here. Um, of course, he's indicated his objection to the renaming. Don't they have better things to do? He apparently said in uh, one meeting, according to the Washington Post. But the Marines had announced they were going to change the policy and ban the... Uh, display of the Confederate battle flag at Marine installations. And then the Navy top official in the Navy, Admiral Michael Gilday, had announced on Tuesday this week he's planning prohibitions on Confederate battle flags. Uh, The Air Force planned to release a policy this week that prohibited the display of that flag. They have uh, now held back, according to the Washington Post, after the President's rebuke of the Army over the uh, renaming of the bases. And, while that's the state of the American military, one of the staunchest supporters of the way of life that you might think is represented by that flag and the president's... (laughs) Did I say the supporters? NASCAR this week announced they've banned the Confederate battle flag from NASCAR events. You know, as has been observed on this program before, you can say it's about heritage. You can say it's about racism. You can say it's about slavery. One thing there can be no argument about the Confederate flag's meaning, it is the flag of the side that lost. Losers don't normally get to fly their flags. I don't think any Civil War loser in any country in the world has gotten to fly its flags 150 years after they lost and surrendered. But, you know, you got to be fair. You can't fly your flag anymore, but you can have an anthem. Hello, welcome to the show. Southland. Land of cotton and loam Losers Got to have a place to call home Secession Well, it's the source of our pride Cause our kinfolk were on The losing side Yeah, our kinfolk were on The losing side Oh, the stars and bars will never 
state flag, the X marks the spot. It took bravery to fight for slavery. That's how we're inclined, 'cause we're just a losing kind. Always left behind, 'cause we're just a losing. Ladies and gentlemen, about four months ago to the day,、uh, we had on this program a guest who brought a wealth of background and experience to the then new subject of COVID nineteen and the coronavirus that causes it. And in the intervening weeks and months, it's been stunning but not surprising to go back and realize,、uh, in a welter of myths and other types of information. Just how on the money the information he gave us in February was. So I've invited him back now as we're entering phase one, phase two, phase three. Who knows what phase?、Uh, he's John Barry, a friend of the show. I'm proud to say his latest book is Roger Williams and the Creation of the American Soul, Church and State, and the Birth of Liberty. And a damn fine piano player too, by the way.、Um, that's a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. And.、Uh, <laughs> Known for his seminal book on the 1927 Mississippi River flood, which I'm just finishing rereading, Rising Tide. The quote that I'm going to take away from that book, by the way, John, is the quote from then Mayor O'Keefe, as the、uh, then 
new Le Petit Theater of the French Quarter was being dedicated on its opening, and he said, this is the sort of thing that makes this city proud, this and the uh, the new garbage incinerator. <laughs> That's, that is a classic. And also, more to the point, author of The Great Influenza, about the 1918 influenza epidemic, pandemic, to which this current thing is constantly being compared. He's a distinguished scholar at Tulane's Bywater Institute and a professor at the Tulane School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine, John Barry. John, welcome back. Thank you. Good to talk to you once again. Thank you. So it's been four months. What do we know now that we didn't know in February? We know a hell of a lot, um, which will eventually turn out to be very useful. Uh, but we're still stuck largely where we were then. You know, we don't yet have a therapeutic drug. We, we, that's not quite true. We do have Mendesivir, which is not a magic potion, but it's helpful, unfortunately, in very short supply. Uh, that's the only one that's proven itself yet. Uh, we still, of course, don't have vaccines, but we have probably roughly 100 vaccine candidates uh, in various stages of development. Um, and we know now for sure what we actually did know then. I don't recall what I said four months ago, but that uh, social distancing, uh, masks, hand washing, staying home when you have the slightest symptom, that if everyone in the country did those things, we would be able to control this outbreak with public health measures. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, that's not the case. And, you know, throw in also important would be uh, testing and contact tracing. Mm -hmm. Well, let's, let's go a little deeper into each of those. Uh, first of all, the one that I recall from way back then that nobody mentions anymore is, or very few people mention anymore is don't touch your face. But I'm sure that still applies, right? That That's still a big part of it. It does seem clearer and clearer, though, that the transmission is from droplets, which can be quite small, and from even smaller airborne uh, virus. So the hands are still important. We don't know exactly what percentage of transmission occurs from hand to your eyes or your mouth or your nose. Mm -hmm. Uh, including something like a yawn, but less so than perhaps an influenza. Mm. Uh, it, it, it's breathing in the virus is the primary mode of transmission by, by a significant margin. Breathing in the virus from the environment. Correct. And, you know, a face-to-face -face conversation, a close contact is defined as less than six feet away and... Uh, more than 15 minutes of face-to-face. -face. Hmm. Uh, that is close contact. The most important thing remains social distancing. Stay at least six feet, maybe a little bit more. And if both people are masked and they're more than six feet apart, it, you know, it's fairly low risk. It's not zero risk, hmm. but it's low risk. Hmm. Uh, your masks are not going to stop the smaller airborne particles, think of a chain link fence and a mosquito. The virus is pretty small. It's not going to pay a lot of attention to the uh, 
chain link fence, but if somebody throws a baseball at you, <laughs> that fence will protect you. Uh, so the larger droplets would be somewhat comparable to a to a baseball thrown at a chain link fence, but there's still airborne virus that would get could get through the mask. Uh, so don't get within six feet of somebody with a baseball. <laughs> Particularly if they have a baseball bat, I think. Okay. Uh, let me just poke away at, at some of these because uh, in in the news today, as we're speaking on, on Thursday before the uh, program airs, um, the BBC had a, a fairly long report on the discussion inside Britain over whether to reduce the mandatory or recommended social distancing from two meters to one meter. Now, uh, I'm, I'm not real good on the metric stuff, but I'm sure you are. Um, one meter is less than six feet, right? Yeah, the WHO seems to talk in terms of one meter lots of, lots of times. Uh, there's no question six feet is better than, than three feet. One, you know, two meters is better than one meter. Mm-hmm. The six feet standard go, goes back, um, I think, to the 1930s, actually, when there were some tests run on stuff. Uh, and even way back in 1918, they ran some, some pretty good tests on how far, uh, you, you know, they laid out petri dishes filled with uh, medium and, and sort of checked how far it would be before bacteria would grow and so forth, mm-hmm. how far away. Um, now that, of course, bacteria are, are not virus, right? Uh, but the principle is the same. I would prefer the six feet to the one meter, but, you know, they have to. <laughs> I don't understand the reasoning behind I think, uh, I th- lowering that. I think the discussion, uh, as I understood it from the BBC report, is... Um, Two meters is uh, difficult for a lot of economic players to uh, factor into the way they do business, like restaurants and uh, pubs. Pubs are a lot more important in the British economy than they than bars are here. But um, and certainly the government health authority, I believe, independent, but talking to the government. Uh, agrees with you that the numbers say <clears throat> there's a lot more protection at two meters than at one, but the British government is pointing to France, Canada, I think Australia, a lot of other countries which have adopted one meter, possibly for the same reason, for economic reasons. Um, certainly, yeah. as as they discussed it this morning on the B, um, it's almost twice as effective to have two uh, meters as one. Well, you know, the British government has been one of the worst performing in the world, and their per capita death toll mm-hmm. is one of the highest in the world. Although Brazil is uh, catching up on them, right? Brazil is not doing very well. <laughs> you know, they have the worst president in the world in terms of taking this seriously, mm-hmm. even considerably worse than Trump. Mm. Uh, but the British government got a very slow start. Uh, they were talking about herd immunity. Of course, Sweden has been experimenting with that, and that experiment has not gone very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, as of right now, uh, they have more deaths per capita than the United States. Sweden does. And 
Sweden and the U.S. hadn't done so well, and they have well over 90% of the population still has not been exposed to the virus. Hmm. So they've had 4,000 deaths or more than that, and they're only a 10 million population. Uh, and it's double their, or more than double the, their neighbors, Scandinavian, yeah. other Scandinavian yeah. countries. Yeah. Next one I want to tackle is has been, I think, confusing to a lot of people because a lot of different inf- uh, kinds of information have come out regarding masks and the effectiveness of masks. Um, mm-hmm. And there have been different recommendations uh, depending on when you heard them. Um, the state of the of the knowledge at this point about uh, non N95 masks, cloth masks, uh, is is exactly what. It's still a little bit confusing. I probably said on your show, but I don't explicitly remember, uh, that masks will protect other people Mm -hmm. from someone who is ill, largely because they will uh, collect the larger droplets, Mm -hmm. Uh, but that they're not real good at protecting someone who is healthy from just the general environment. You know, I my view on that may have shifted a little bit. I haven't really decided. There have been very few control studies. In fact, basically none. <laughs> uh, but there are a lot of observational studies that suggest it may be uh, more protective uh, than I had been willing to ascribe. So I'm ready to move my position on that based on the data that the experiments are not great. Mm. There was one uh, very well-designed experiment uh, dealing with influenza uh, over a two-year period, which found an observational uh, difference in masks alone, uh, but it was not statistically significant. Mm. That does not mean that they didn't do some good they may have they may not have Mm -hmm. it registered as having done good uh, but again it wasn't so dramatic a change to be statistically significant got it Uh, but there seems to be a lot of observational studies that reach you know that point in the same direction Mm -hmm. that you know it's not huge but it's noticeable Mm -hmm. and since almost all the studies seem to come down on the same side, then, you know, that's enough for me to, some of my concerns about the mask uh, were, although they do prevent people from touching their face, so that cuts down on the hand to mouth and nose eye, mm-hmm. well, not the eyes, but hand to mouth and nose transmission. But I was concerned that they make people feel safer than they are, mm-hmm. and therefore it cuts down on the social distancing, right, right. which is the most important thing. So I thought they may have proven counterproductive on those grounds. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, it is a trade-off. But I I certainly now go around wearing a mask myself. You do? So, yeah, I do. So uh, if I do it, (laughs) you know, and, and, you know, of course... You know, then I it would be hard put not to recommend that somebody else do it. Yes, and and in fact, you know, the CDC in the U.S. and uh, you know plenty of other agencies around the world also recommend masks. So, I, and and they definitely 
protect other people if you are sick. Mm -hmm. And since we do know it can be spread by people either pre-symptomatic, i.e. they will have symptoms but they haven't developed them yet, and also asymptomatic people, people who never develop symptoms. So it's definitely something you should do. Definitely. And and were you suggesting that these, these observational studies suggest that mask wearers are protected from from being infected? They, there does seem, yeah. That there's, the data seems to lean in that direction. It's not crystal clear. Okay. And may turn out to be the case. Actually, a friend of mine, uh, Mike Osterholm, is embarking upon a careful study with aerodynamic engineers looking at you know, he's going to try to find out. Okay. Um, and if you follow this issue, uh, Osterholm is, you know, one of the most frequently quoted uh, experts in the in the area. He's been uh, studying pandemics and pandemic preparedness for much longer than I have, at least 25 years. Hmm. Uh, he runs something called the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Uh, he was intimately involved in pandemic preparedness under George W. Bush and, and Obama, uh, and you know uh, hasn't been you know, part of the process under Trump. Hmm. Strange that um, th- this week that we're talking, there was uh, a flurry of um, reports. One, the first of which threw grave doubt on the. Uh, possibility or on the likelihood of asymptomatic transmission and then it was walked back within a day or two that came out of the WHO right yeah uh, correct and uh, what was that well she said based on contact tracing uh, studies that were pretty good she thought that it was very rare Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the, the scientists who made that statement it was a passing comment at a press conference not devoted to the issue uh there was a lot of pushback from oh the scientific community and as you say that's been walked back you know there is certainly without a doubt evidence about pre-symptomatic transmission Mm -hmm. and you don't know that you're going to get sick when you don't have any symptoms so Mm -hmm. The difference between asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic is a distinction without a difference for all practical purposes. Uh, but in addition to that, there, in fact, there is evidence, at least some, that someone who is about to develop symptoms may shed more virus in the two days before they develop symptoms than they shed after they mm-hmm. develop symptoms. Mm-hmm. So they are more dangerous before they have a symptom. Uh, there is evidence suggesting that we don't know definitively. There are a lot of things we don't know definitively. And there is also plenty of evidence of asymptomatic transmission. Again, there are so many things we don't know. Uh, Things that have cleared up a little bit uh, in terms of how things are transmitted. So I said earlier, the so-called fomites, which are things like doorknobs, Mm -hmm. they seem less involved than we were initially concerned about. Mm -hmm. Both the CDC and the World Health Organization agree on that. Uh, That doesn't mean they're not a factor, 
but they're less of a factor than we had earlier been worried about. Mm -hmm. uh, also, something that is uh, different from, say, influenza transmission is this seems more uh, more super spreaders mm -hmm. than is the case in influenza. Mm -hmm. uh, there are different studies that have said, in one case, 20% of the people are responsible for 80% of the spread. There was another study that said 10% wow. uh, are responsible for 80% of the spread. And that's, there certainly are super spreading events in influenza, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, that seems more so in, in COVID-19. You know, so the obvious thing is, well, if you can identify the super spreaders, <laughs> yeah. Kill then we can go a long way to Well, <laughs> the problem is identifying them. Yeah. Uh, we know from SARS and MERS, which is, I'm sure you know, both coronaviruses, mm -hmm. that some people shed a lot more virus than other people. Now, we know that definitively. So that's a good chance that's the case here and that that would account at least partly for the super spreading. So they're, they're super shedders as well. Exactly. You got it. Um, other things that uh, I think we think we knew that we don't know the same thing about the, it now. That's a bad construction of a, an attempted sentence. But uh, we were told at one point, uh, children can't don't don't get this disease. Now we know that some children or a few children have and do. Um, it was when we last talked, basically a a uh, a disease of the respiratory system. And now we know there's uh, in some cases kidney damage, neurological damage, um, right. and and. Right. Uh, Ed Young in the Atlantic this week uh, talks to a bunch of people who, uh, for whom the symptoms have never gone away so far. Uh, Long-termers, they call themselves. So these are new right. facets of the of the story, right? Right. The uh, you know it's funny. It's remarkably similar to the pathology in 1918. Mm -hmm. Remarkably, really? you know, the way people die, cytokine storms. Uh, and that 1918 virus could infect practically every organ, neurological uh, symptoms were, according to studies after the pandemic, quote, second only to pulmonary, wow. unquote. Wow. And that seems to be quite common now. Mm -hmm. uh, so apparently the virus, both in 1918 and today, could cross what's called the blood-brain barrier. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, I think we probably knew at the time I was on the show ever earlier. In fact, I think probably mentioned it. You know, or there can be oral fecal transmission. I think public toilets are dangerous. You know, someone can go to the bathroom. You know, bowel movement, flush the toilet, and create airborne virus, mm. which are quite different, difficult, obviously, to clean. Um, depending on the ventilation in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. But, you know, wiping down the uh, sink is not going to take care of that airborne virus. Right. Uh, so public bathrooms are not great places to spend time. Uh, anyway. Anyway, yeah. 
uh, that that's you know I probably mentioned that four months ago. No, you uh, didn't. That and clearly I, I, was the th- case. That's a that's a new okay a new contribution to our knowledge. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, larger picture. Uh, I don't think it can be denied that the two agencies you've quoted in this conversation and earlier uh, have come in for an awful lot of criticism and certainly don't have nearly the widespread public credibility that they did uh, before this all started. And I'm referring to the CDC and the WHO. What what can you say about those two agencies at this point? Well, uh, I'm the, the CDC certainly had a you know opening debacle with the testing. Mm-hmm. You know they they bear a significant amount of responsibility for getting us off to a bad start. Now let me let me just poke it let me poke at that for a minute. What what I think we knew was that the WHO had come up with a test and the CDC or somebody in the United States government decided no we're going to use the CDC's test instead. Is that really what happened? Um I believe so but you know that would not be unusual. The, the unusual part is that the CDC test had problems. Mm-hmm. Uh that's the part that's unusual. Right. Okay. Uh, that and the decisions to limit testing to people who had recently traveled to China or had contact with people. As as a result of those limitations, you know, we did not know that there was community transmission in the United States when it was happening. Mm-hmm. We were we were going blind. I mean, you know, going around like are trying to make decisions without information. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mentioned Mike Osterholm earlier. I wrote an op-ed in January, and the working title was This Virus Cannot Be Contained, although I ended up softening when it was published uh, to something like uh, Can This Virus Be Contained? <laughs> Probably not. That was the title. But we're, we're talking about mid-January, and I was talking to Osterholm then, and he kept saying, well, he was very frustrated because he said, well, we don't know whether it's here because we're not testing. Those were the days when we had a tiny handful of patients, mm-hmm. in the, according to the official count, mm-hmm. when, in fact, it was circulating in the community uh, already. Uh, but we weren't testing, so we didn't know. But the testing remained. It's no longer CDC's fault. It's gone well beyond that. Uh, but that initial blind spot, was partly the CDC's responsibility, partly FDA's, but it's it's gone well beyond that since then. You know, we don't have enough tests still. We're in terms of raw numbers, we're testing a lot of people, but a lot of those are, for example, everybody walks into a hospital for any reason these days gets gets tested. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the number of actual community tests out there. I mean, if you look at the total number of people being tested on any given day, it looks like a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of those tests are accounted for by people who routinely tested as opposed to the general population who may or may not be sick. We don't have the contact tracing in place in most places. We're not getting enough cooperation from the public with the contact tracers as mm-hmm. we need. And 
we are, I won't say we're on the verge of losing control yet, and not that we've been in control. We made a lot of progress. I would say if we had not intervened in the United States, as we did in the middle of March, that by now we would, without a doubt, have half a million people dead. Hmm. And we would be well on our way uh, to surpassing the worst case projections. If we did not had done nothing, the projections were about two million dead, uh, based on various models. And as I said, if we hadn't done anything, we would have been moving toward that pretty rapidly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did intervene. I think most states loosened up too soon, a little bit. And I can understand the pressure. There are a lot of people out of work and a lot of people suffering. Those are real problems. But we we should have come out smarter. We haven't learned best practices from other countries, which can be applied, which should be applied. Um, You can keep the economy going and you can save lives. They are not mutually exclusive. But at least at the national level, we seem to be behaving as if they are uh, and they're not you know, I am on a daily basis amazed by the lack of leadership from this White House uh, particularly because it's in their own self interest politically to get a handle on this and it's doable that is the great tragedy that we can save a lot of lives going forward without stopping the economy. Now, but we're not doing it. One thing that I think um, doesn't get said enough is that testing numbers, if just thrown out like that, um, okay, we tested so many people on this day, it assumes that people once tested, that's, that's the end of it. Um, but people... Yeah can be tested one day and get infected the next. So you, you, you're not calculating the number of tests just by the, the population times one, right? You have to test. Everybody has to be tested fairly regularly for a period of time. Isn't that not true? Yeah. And, and again, I mean, yes, you're right, because uh, you can even have, you know be infected and the test will be negative even if it's a good test if it's very early in the infection it's quite possible yeah we're also hearing Uh, a lot about false negatives now right right you know i mean there have been a lot of problems with the testing and there continue to be problems so they are beginning to be ironed out but the number testing the right people and even more the contact tracing Mm -hmm. you know these things work you know, South Korea has a different culture. More people are going to wear masks there mm-hmm. and so forth. But even so, you've got a country of 51 million people and you have fewer than 300 mm-hmm. people dead. We are, you know, six times the size, but we have 110, 112,000 people dead. That's a lot more than six mm-hmm. times 300. So it's very frustrating to anybody who knows anything about public health or that people's people are going to die who don't have to die. Mm-hmm. Thousands of people have died in the United States who did not have to die. 
let me double back to that one other organization that I wanted to uh, get your reading on, and that's the WHO, which has been subject to a lot of political uh, hectoring in, in the United States. The United States has, has announced it's going to pull out of the WHO. Are, are any of the criticisms justified, or is it just a, a whipping boy? Well, it's primarily a whipping boy. I think that publicly they were in a difficult position with China. And I should say I almost have a conflict of interest. One of my closest friends is an assistant director general of WHO. Mm. Uh, you know, they privately they were they were pushing as hard as they could to get information, and we're not getting very far. Mm-hmm. I believe that they were afraid if they publicly started to attack them, they'd get even less information. Mm-hmm. This is almost like the uh, um, Washington journalists' problem of access versus uh, honest reporting. That, that's true. So they they knew that they weren't getting what they needed. The question is, how do you get it? Mm-hmm. And what was the best way to proceed regarding China? Uh, China has simply not been forthcoming. There's no question about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least not in my view. Uh, I think the WHO's statement the other day, it was not an official policy statement for the one we talked about earlier mm-hmm. uh, about asymptomatic mm-hmm. transmission. Mm-hmm. I think that was a you know serious mistake. Uh, messaging in a pandemic is extraordinarily important when your entire approach to controlling the disease depends on public compliance with your advice, then you better be very, very careful in anything you say that might affect how people respond to that advice. And, you know, that was a mistake. So I was disappointed in that. We're we're living in a time when there's uh, widespread skepticism, to put it mildly, about authority and expertise. Um, so going forward... If somebody asked you, John, I'm hearing all this stuff about this, and I don't know who to believe, what would you say? Well, I would still rely on the CDC's website, particularly when it came to disease advice. I guess the CDC has been under such political pressure from the White House. Maybe the most disturbing thing occurred about two weeks ago when the CDC withdrew its guidance about church choirs. That really bothered me. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that pressure came from the White House. And, you know, there's a point where I think you say, no, I'm not going to put my name on that. If you want to fire me, fire me. And I think that might have been that point. Because if there's one, you know, pretty clearly identified problem area it would be situations like a church choir people pretty closely packed uh speaking loudly or in that case singing for an extended period of time uh and for them to have withdrawn their guidance on choirs that troubled me a lot i i i think redfield should have redfield should have drawn the line there i was not happy their guidance was not go play golf instead, was it? Well, 
playing golf would be a lot safer. <laughs> yes, it would. <laughs> I mean, the transmission outdoors is, is there's not a lot of transmission outdoors. Hmm. So we you know, shouldn't we shouldn't look uh, for a big spike following this these weeks of protests because they're all outdoors. Well, that's a little bit different because people may be closely packed, mm. and it's hard to say. It depends. You know, I went to uh, uh, in Jackson Square in New Orleans, where I live, and where you also have a place. You know, people. There are a lot of people who were keeping a you know, pretty decent space at that uh, rally or protest, and. A surprising number were wearing masks. I was pleasantly surprised. Well, man, the uh, people in New Orleans like to wear masks every day of the year. You know, that's part of the culture. Good point. Good point. And it was outside, so it's not clear. But in other areas, if they're singing, chanting, shouting, mm-hmm. and they're fairly close, yeah, there's going to be transmission. It wouldn't be the same that there would be indoors, but there'd be still be transmission. Yeah. Someone on a beach, I'm not very concerned about. However, you then go to the bar at the beach, mm-hmm. that's different. Yeah. But lying out there on the sun or jumping in the water, uh, even when beaches are crowded, people are still usually a few, you know, uh, certainly you're one meter away <laughs> physically, mm-hmm. in most cases more than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so beaches don't trouble me. I think that concern was a little bit overblown. John, it's always enlightening. I was going to say it's a pleasure, but, the, you know, when you mentioned public bathrooms, the pleasure went all out of this conversation. But uh, <laughs> it's it's always enlightening to, to talk to you, uh, and especially on this subject where... Um, there's so much noise uh, that has to be filtered out before you get uh, in, in the in the general din of what we're hearing. It's it's a pleasure to hear pretty straight information without without the din. So thank you again for helping the listeners kind of figure this all out. And uh, always good to talk to you. And I think this is this is as important uh, and, and uh, worthy of celebration in New Orleans as the opening of a new garbage incinerator so (laughs) thank you again thank you always a pleasure now the apologies of the week oh a plethora a shed load of apologies this week had to be kind of selective um just just a sampling just a random but uh, sort of representative sampling. A Georgia high school has issued an apology and a promise to reprint this year's yearbook after an inappropriate photo featuring Martin Luther King Jr. and racist language made it into the book. Students at Collins Hill High School in Suwanee were shocked to find a photoshopped image of the famed civil rights, re- light, rights leader posing next to a young man holding a notebook that said, Official N-Word Pass. In a letter to families and staff members, Collins Principal Carenza Wing called the image inappropriate and racist and unacceptable. The school is investigating who submitted the photo, how it managed to go unaddressed before the yearbooks went to print. I uh, remember the scene at my college yearbook. Oh, I was next door doing the uh, humor magazine. They were drunk most of the time, so that you know, that may be how it got in. 
Wing said an initial investigation found that some pages were left unfinished before the school transitioned to digital learning, and the yearbook company replaced those pages with submitted senior selfies. She confirmed the photo was submitted by the yearbook staff and that school officials were meeting with those involved. I know offensive words and sentiments like the one included in this photo are hurtful, and you have my full apology this has happened, she said. I'm disappointed in the students involved. This is not who we are at Collins Hill High School. It does not reflect our values and beliefs, unquote. It's never who we are. We're never who we are. Well, Wing initially said the school would hand out stickers of a replacement photo to all who purchased a yearbook. She later said all yearbooks would be recalled, replaced with new revised ones. The stickers was a good idea. Bayline, Melbourne, Australia, Rio Tinto Chief Executive Jean-Sebastien Jacques apologized this week for distress caused by Rio's destruction last month of two ancient sacred aboriginal caves in Western Australia and pledged full cooperation with an Australian government investigation. We're very sorry for the distress we've caused the uh, indigenous people in relation to Jukon Gorge, and our first priority remains rebuilding trust with the indigenous people. The apology uh, marked Jacques' first public comments on the event since um, it occurred more than two weeks ago. The head of iron ore at Rio Tinto, which is a mining company. Chris Salisbury had previously expressed the miner's remorse, although stopped short of saying that Rio had done anything wrong when he was interviewed by Australian media. With state government approval, that's Western Australia, the world's biggest iron ore miner destroyed two caves at Jukon Gorge that had previously contained evidence of continued human habitation stretching back 46,000 years. This was part of its mine expansion in the iron-rich Pilbara region. Australia's Senate is beginning a national inquiry into how the destruction of a cultural and historically significant site occurred. They'll have their report back by the end of September. Oh, sure they will. The world's largest automaker, Volkswagen, will step up controls of marketing content and improve training of its personnel to prevent a repeat of the furor caused by the Instagram... Did I say furor in Volkswagen? Caused by the Instagram clip last month, officials said, despite our diverse and international teams, a racial, a racist video was produced, said Jürgen Stockmann, head of marketing at VW. In a briefing with journalists, it seems very clear that apart from mistakes in the process chain, there were also shortcomings in creating sensitivity among employees. The clip was produced by Omnicom Group's Berlin-based subsidiary, Voltage. It sparked widespread criticism and tensions within the company. Voltage was established just last year to handle the VW account. The statement translated from the chairman, Voltage said that an internal audit is underway, but we have so far no evidence that racist elements have been intentionally added to the Instagram video. Nevertheless, no one noticed such elements in the diverse quality controls and approval processes. We have to do much better here in the future. uh, They're going to invest in appropriate training. Even when the community made us aware on May 19th the video contains racist elements, it took too long to recognize the real problem. We are also very sorry for that. Another business is apologizing, Facebook. During an internal presentation there on this week, the company debuted features for Facebook Workplace, an intranet-style chat and office collaboration product similar to Slack, 
Let's put, let's put somebody else out of business, don't you think? On Facebook Workplace, employees see a stream of content similar to a news feed, automatically generated trending topics based on what people are posting about. One of the new tools allows administrators to remove and block certain trending topics among employees. The presentation discussed the benefits of content control, and it offered one example of a topic employers might find it useful to blacklist. The word was unionize. That um, sparked a flurry of posts from Facebook employees denouncing the feature. The following day, the company presentation was taken down, and after the presentation had been deleted, Karen Deep Anand A product manager for Facebook Workplace weighed in on an internal company board. He apologized for the unionized example, noting that, quote, censoring users is not the purpose of this feature, and Workplace's ambition is to give everyone a voice while maintaining a respectful work environment. uh, That's a quote. He added that the oversight was likely, quote, lack of context versus bad intent from anyone on the team. The incident is... uh, the latest example of a deeply divided office environment at Facebook. A growing number of employees are openly expressing distrust in leadership. My favorite quote of all this, employee noted that many Facebook team members are now questioning the moral compass of Mark Zuckerberg. It took till now... Owners of Max's Tap House in Fells Point, Maryland, it's a tourist attraction in Baltimore, have apologized to patrons after an employee shared a post dismissing police brutality on the very same Facebook. The post, which the restaurant called disturbing, asserted, quote, police will leave you alone if you don't do illegal stuff. It garnered criticism. Commenters began to promise boycotts of the bar. Spokesman for Max's Tap House said in a statement, that the employee whom they did not name claimed to have shared the post by mistake. The bar firmly supports peaceful protests in the Black Lives Matter movement, the statement said. Owners intend to contribute a portion of this week's sales to organizations fighting injustice. Screenshots of the Max employee's post identify him as Jason Hard. But they're sorry now. It's so hard to be Jason. Oregon State University's football program has dismissed redshirt freshman tight end Rocco Carley from the team. This um, on the heels of an audio file coming to light from three years ago with him saying derogatory and hate-filled speech toward African-Americans, homosexuals, and Muslims. He issued a statement apologizing for his actions. I'm sorry this does not condone anything of what I've said, but I promise to you all that this video does not represent me. I was doing an accent of a southern man and giving it a very satirical example of what we all thought would be funny. This in no way, shape, or form makes what I said right. I am truthfully sorry to everyone I've heard and offended, and I understand I've not represented me or my family in any positive way during this situation. To my brothers and teammates and everyone of color that I've associated with, I hope you know me well enough to know I'm in no way, shape, or form a racist, Again, I apologize. Satire by amateurs, more dangerous than ever. The president of a fraternal order of police chapter along Florida's Space Coast, not Space Ghost, don't get excited, is apologizing for a social media post over the weekend that encouraged officers linked to departments accused of using excessive force during recent protests to apply for jobs in Florida. Bert Gammon, 
president of the Fraternal Order Police Lodge in Brevard County, called his post, quote, in poor taste, in his statement to local media, Hey, Buffalo 57 and Atlanta 6, we're hiring in Florida. Lower taxes, no spineless leadership, or dumb mayors rambling on at press conferences. Plus, we got your back. That was the post. Brevard County Sheriff Wayne Ivey distanced himself from the Fraternal Order Police post, calling it disgraceful and insensitive to current important and critical issues that are occurring across our country. Stanislaw County Superior Court, this is in... uh, Northern California is apologizing for a post on its Twitter account mocking protesters tearing down a Confederate statue and endorsing President <laughs> President Trump's re-election. The court said it became aware of the post Thursday, issued an apology the same day, saying it had been hacked. Court later said one of its employees was responsible. Hacked from within. That is the worst kind. It hurts so much. AMC Entertainment Holdings Chief Executive Officer Adam Aaron has uh, apologized to a financial analyst. He downplayed her February concerns about the coronavirus. That was right before the crisis brought the theater chain to the brink of insolvency. Megan Durkin of a financial firm called Credit Suisse had inquired about the spread of COVID-19 in Italy during the company's previous earnings car. Call. Aaron said, we adore you, Megan, but there's about 19 questions in there. He went on to say that the economic impact of the outbreak was, quote, de minimis. This week, when the company held its latest earnings call, Aaron's tone was quite different. He said to Durkin, I owe you an apology. You asked me about 15 questions about the coronavirus in Italy, and I think I said something like it's eight theaters in Italy. Two and a half weeks later, it was a thousand theaters in 15 countries. What he was indicating is that the pandemic forced AMC to close all of its theaters, leading to a loss of nearly $2.2 billion in the first quarter of the year. They're reopening their theaters here in the Los Angeles area. Some locations, though, will close permanently. He uh, went on at the meeting to ask Durkin if she knew of any future crisis that AMC should watch out for. We've got the worst health problems since 1918. We've got the worst economic crisis since the 1930s. And we have the biggest social unrest in the United States since the 1960s. If there's a fourth one the world would like to throw at us, I just want to know if you want to predict what that one is. She said she had no issues on the last call and declined to make predictions about forthcoming calamities. Oh, gee, there's an apology by one of the stars of Dance Moms. Nah. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
suppose this may be a new feature. May have to copyright it. The non-apology of the week. Secret Service this weekend admitted, after denying it for about a week and a half, that one of its officers did in fact use pepper spray as part of removing the crowd of protesters from Lafayette Square to enable (laughs) President Trump to uh, do his famous, really world-famous, photo op in front of a church across from the White House. Secret Service had said, no, no, we didn't use... Oh, you mean pepper spray. Yeah, yeah, that was the non-apology of the week, ladies and gentlemen. Maybe the only one, but it's a goodie. That concludes this week's edition of the show. Program returns next week at the same time on your radio station of choice and on a time of your choosing on your audio device of choice. It's all about choice. And it'd be just like admitting you used pepper spray in the first place if you'd agree to join with me then, would you? Alrighty, thank you very much, Uh uh-huh. Show chapeau to the San Diego desk and Pam Halstead and Thomas Walter, WWNO New Orleans, for help with today's program. The email address for this here thing, a playlist of the music heard here on, and your chance to get Cars I Talk t shirts. Think of the thrill, all yours to enjoy or not at harryshare.com. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Share. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Changes Easy Radio Network. So long from Santa Monica, California, known around the world as the home of the homeless. <laughs>